Welcome to Tom SciCast, and I'm your host, Dr. Tom Kennedy. Now, this is my first episode of 2021, and I'm pretty excited because today we're going to talk about energy, enzymes, and metabolism. Energy, enzymes, and metabolism. What in the world? Why would we talk about all of these things together? Well, you know, I always like to take a step back, look at the big picture. And first of all, you know, these things are really important for life. And in fact, what is life? Hmm. You know, every textbook you ever read, every Wikipedia article or, or whatever you Google on the web is going to give you something different, right? But think about it this way. If you think of life as an emergent property of a complex system that uses energy to create order through a series of chemical reactions, now we're starting to get somewhere. There's a lot that I just said right there. So first of all, an emergent property. Well, that means that we're greater than the sum of our parts. For example, every single one of us is made up of carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen. Just those four elements, and that's like 96% of what you are. But I'm definitely much more complex and different than carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen. You get my drift here. And uh, so a complex property is something like Oxygen, which is a gas, combines with hydrogen, another gas, and you get water, which is a liquid at room temperature. Or you take sodium, which is a metal that catches on fire if you put it in water, and combine it with chlorine, which is a poisonous gas, you get table salt. So those are examples of emergent properties. So a living system is an emergent property of this complex system. Now, what is a complex system? Now, we know that the cell is a basic unit of life, right? A cell is a system. You are a system, and a system has a boundary. And for a cell, that boundary would be a membrane. So all of the chemical reactions that take place within that membrane would be a system. All the interacting parts are all these interacting components. So now you start to see life is an emergent property of a complex system. Now you get the idea. Life is an emergent property of a complex system. Now here's the next part. It uses energy to create order through a series of chemical reactions. Now, there's more to this, of course. You know, you're not in equilibrium with your environment. And you may have heard some far out dude go, man, bro, gotta be in equilibrium with our environment, man. Gotta be in equilibrium. Well, from a biology or a chemical point of view, you never want to be in equilibrium with your environment. And the reason why is you'd be dead. You'd be some water, carbon dioxide, and some minerals on the ground, and that's it. So life is out of equilibrium with this environment. Life is ordered. Yes, we have low entropy. Going back to those laws of thermodynamics, right? Life creates order. And the way you do that is energy and chemical reactions. Okay. So if you start to think about the topic here, energy, enzymes, and the introduction to metabolism. So chemical reactions. You know, life emerges from all these complex chemical reactions taking place inside of a cell. And you have chemical reactions that break down large molecules into smaller ones, often to get energy from that or to get other building blocks. Or we take those smaller building blocks and an input of energy and we make larger molecules. And together, 
all the chemical reactions inside of our body, that is our metabolism, right? And you could be catabolic, which is breaking things down. So when you're eating food and you're breaking down your food and extracting energy from it, that's a catabolic process. On the flip side, if you're taking amino acids, you know, the building blocks of proteins and building them up into proteins, that's anabolic. So life uses all these chemical reactions to create order, maintain homeostasis. And the crucial ingredient of life, in addition to water, and of course our elements that make our molecules, our crucial ingredient is energy. Without energy, you can't have life. Because energy can do work, right? And we're going to talk about the different forms of energy as we go on. But you got to have energy to do work. So now we're starting to see it, right? A lot of places like to come up with the seven characteristics of life or these definitions of life. You know, I prefer to think of life as an action. Life is a verb. Don't ask me, what is life? Ask me, you know, what does life do? What does it mean to be living? And when you start talking about life as an emergent property from a complex system that's using energy to create order through a series of chemical reactions, you notice there's a verb in there. Uses energy to create. Right? That's life. Life is creating order. Life is an action. Life is a verb. Life does something. And it's using energy to create order. And because life is complex, it's also an emergent property. We're greater than the sum of our parts. So today, I've already talked about what life is. I want to talk a little bit more about energy and how enzymes work. Because we have all these chemical reactions. Cells have thousands upon thousands of different types of chemical reactions. But you might have millions occurring in each one of your cells every single second of every day. And when you start to realize that you have about 17 trillion cells in your body, and each one of those cells is carrying out millions of chemical reactions every second, you start to see that chemical reactions are important. And we need enzymes to carry out these chemical reactions and the energy powers our metabolism. All right. So this is what we're going to talk about today. How enzymes work and the nature of energy. For most of us, it's pretty easy to separate something that's living from not living. It's so easy to often identify something as living that for a long time, humanity thought that there was this vital force to life. That there was some something inherently different about life than, let's say, a rock in your backyard. That rock was not living, but you are. But you must have this vital force that separates you from the rock. Well, you know, we've we've disproved this idea of vitalism and vital forces. And we did it through experimentation, of course. But starting in the 1800s, we started to realize the importance of energy for life. If you've ever watched or read anything about Frankenstein, there's always some crazy mad scientist trying to capture the energy of a lightning bolt to reanimate life. Don't worry, there will never be a zombie apocalypse. I promise you, you cannot reanimate life. And I know that based on the second law of thermodynamics, 
which I'll come back to. But early on, scientists started realizing that life needed energy. And one of the reasons why is they would, is they would use a dead frog and add a little bit of electricity to it, and this dead frog leg would twitch. And that's the origin of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with needing this secret source of energy to reanimate life. And in fact, uh, you should go watch Young Frankenstein, uh, you know, where he's using the energy to bring the monster back to life. So that brings up an interesting question, something that a lot of us really don't think about. What is energy? What is energy? You know, how do we define energy? Well, you know, energy in life, you have to have energy to have something living. And I said, you know, life does something. Life is an action. Life is a verb. You know, energy can be thought of as an action kind of similarly too, right? Energy is a force that can affect change in the universe. A more common definition of energy is that energy is the ability to do work, right? So think about this. Well, what is work, you know? So work is defined as using a force to move an object a certain distance. Now I'm a weightlifter. I like to bench press and deadlift, you know, and do all these nice weights. And when you're lifting weights, you're doing work because you're lifting an object through a certain distance, right? So that's how we define work. And of course that takes energy to do that. And that energy is what we call Gibbs free energy. Now let me go off on just a little tangent. You see, Einstein is one of my personal heroes in life. The guy was really smart. Like he was really smart. And in 1905, while working as a patent clerk, this guy published a theory. You may have heard of it. It's called the Special Theory of Relativity. And it came out with the most famous equation probably in the history of the world, E equals MC squared. Energy is equivalent to mass times the velocity of the speed of light squared. Now, okay, we can all remember that. But what does that really mean? You see, Einstein realized that energy is tied up in the mass of an object. And what's that speed of light? You know, the speed of light is like 186,282 miles per second. That is fast enough to go around the earth like seven and a half times in one second. And you square that number and you multiply it by the mass of an object and that gives you its energy. That means there is an incredible amount of energy tied up in the mass of objects. And of course, and of course, Einstein started the atomic revolution because scientists realized if you could split the atom, you could release enormous amounts of energy. And within 40 years, that's exactly what they did when they developed the atomic weapon and we brought in the nuclear age. Of course, Einstein's contributions were more than that. He established that the speed of light is a universal speed limit. The reason why is because as you go faster and faster and faster, it takes more and more energy. You see this on a day-to-day -day basis, right? If you walk to the gym, you don't spend much energy. But if you jog to the gym, what happens? You know, you start breathing a little bit more, your body temperature rises. That's because it takes more energy to get you to the gym. Even though you get there faster, you're still spending more energy. And if you sprint to the gym, you're using a lot of energy to get that same distance. And the idea is as you go faster and faster and faster, 
it takes more and more energy to make you go faster. And as you approach the speed of light, the object gains more energy, right? It gains mass. So to cross the speed of light, you become infinitely heavy and it takes an infinite amount of energy to push something beyond the speed of light. And that's why you can't go the speed of light. I know, I wish we could, because that would be nice. We could go travel the universe. In addition to Einstein's contribution, there are also these laws of thermodynamics that govern energy transformations. And believe it or not, there are four laws of thermodynamics. Now for biology, I typically only go over the first two, not the zero and not the third law. But these laws of thermodynamics, uh, the first one, it just states that energy cannot be created nor destroyed, but you can transfer it and transform it. Now, the reality is in a chemical reaction, which is what we're doing for our metabolism, if I take, if I take the reactants and I have my products, right? So the total amount of energy in my reactants must equal the amount of energy in my products or energy that's been released if I'm, if I'm breaking something down like paper in a fire. So I'm not gaining or losing energy. Now, of course, this is in a closed system. And a closed system is something that it doesn't, is a system where nothing gets in or out. Now, wait a second. Doesn't that sound good? The universe is never going to run out of energy. We're always going to have the same amount of energy in the universe. So why are we worried? So why are we worried about energy? Well, it turns out there's this pesky second law of thermodynamics, and it states that every time you use energy, if you transfer it or transform it, the amount of energy available to do work, also known as Gibbs free energy, that energy goes away. And we're still having energy. It just becomes degraded as this thing called entropy increases. So we're losing the amount of energy available to do work every time we use it, as entropy increases. And eventually, the entire universe will grind to a halt as entropy increases and the universe reaches equilibrium. I know. That's why we can't recycle energy. That's why living systems have to have a constant supply of energy because we cannot recycle it. Now, elements, minerals, they can be recycled over and over and over and over again. I mean, you've got carbon atoms in you that are 5 billion years old. They've been in rocks. They've been in dinosaurs. They've been in plants. They've been as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But it takes energy to keep those minerals and those elements in circulation. Now, of course, you probably already know this, but energy comes in two different forms. You've got kinetic energy and you've got potential energy. And kinetic energy, that's the energy of motion. So if something is motion, it has energy. And the faster you're going, the more energy you have. And of course, there are different forms of kinetic energy. One is electricity. And for most of us, that's the movement of electrons forming a circuit. So because the electrons are moving, that's kinetic energy. A lightning bolt, wow. That's one of the best known examples of an electrostatic discharge. Some movement of electrons as the clouds are equilibrating. You've probably created tiny little lightning strikes. You know in the wintertime when like the humidity is really low and you drag your feet across a carpet and then you go up and zap your sibling or your friend or somebody, whoever's around you, 
When you zap them, what's going on is because you dragged your feet on the floor or across a blanket, you've ripped off electrons. So you become negatively charged. So when you go up and you touch somebody, you discharge those electrons to them. So you'll be in equilibrium. It's a little electrostatic discharge. And if it's powerful enough, you can actually see it and feel it. Kind of cool, isn't it? You know, I suppose, since the Jedi have a connection to the Force, which is the Force flows through Jedi, I'm assuming that's much like energy. So does that mean that when Emperor Palpatine was zapping Luke there at the end of Return of the Jedi, I guess that was an electrostatic discharge. Who knows? Just fun to think about. Another form of kinetic energy is the electromagnetic radiation. So if you see sunlight, sunlight is photons moving in waves. And uh, the shorter the wavelength, the more energy it has. So ultraviolet light has way more energy than infrared. You typically feel infrared as a heat. We can see the visible light. Radio waves, microwaves are really long wavelengths. They travel through a lot of different objects, including walls and bricks. Uh, they can't harm you at all. But ultraviolet light has enough energy that it can actually break the bonds of molecules. That's why UV light can damage our skin. And then another form of kinetic energy is thermal energy. See, every object in the universe has a little bit of thermal energy. This is the tiny vibrations at the molecular scale. And when we measure the sum of all of these little tiny vibrations, we call that temperature. Now, the other form of energy is potential energy. And this is the energy that's stored. So for example, when it comes to metabolism, chemical energy is really important here because energy is stored in the bonds of molecules. And some molecules store more energy than others. And here's how it works. Electrons, you know, they formed our covalent bonds. Now, a covalent bond, of course, is sharing electrons between two different elements. And when you're sharing the bond, you got a covalent bond, and the energy is tied up in the bond based on those electrons. If the electrons are being held very closely to a nucleus, it has less potential energy. If the electrons are further and further away from the nucleus, they have more potential energy. So what that means is, if you have a non-polar covalent bond, where you're sharing those electrons equally, well, the electrons are equal distance from the nuclei of those two elements, has the most potential energy. So molecules that have lots of carbon and hydrogen, hmm, hydrocarbons, gasoline, right, they have tons of potential energy. Don't light a match around gasoline, right? The reason why is it stores lots of potential energy. It takes very little energy to break those bonds and create a reaction that releases all the chemical energy. On the flip side, water. Water has very little chemical energy. That's because oxygen, being electronegative, it loves electrons, holds on to those electrons more closely. It takes a lot of energy to break a water molecule. And uh, the reason why is that, that bond is very strong and there's just not a lot of potential energy in it. And you know this, throw a match in water, it goes out. There are other forms of potential energy, like you can store water behind a dam. You can also create what is called electrochemical gradient. I know, more complex words here. Electro means electricity, and chemical means chemical gradient. And then gradient, that's like a, a change in a value across a distance. So if you're walking uphill, you're going up an elevational gradient. 
membranes, they store energy as an electrochemical gradient. Here's how it works. You've got, let's say you've got a pump, a proton pump. And what a proton pump is gonna do is pump protons across the membrane. So you're gonna get a whole bunch more of these hydrogen ions, right? Hydrogen ions are just a proton and they're positively charged. And as you build them up, you have a gradient across that membrane and it's called an electrochemical gradient. The chemical part is, well, you've got more hydrogen ions, protons, same thing across the, across the membrane. The electrical part is, well, protons are positively charged. So you get a positive charge on one side of the membrane compared to the other. So you have an electrochemical gradient. So there you have it. Those are the different forms of energy. And remember, you can transfer energy whenever you're playing baseball or any type of sports and you kick a ball, right? You're, you're conveying mechanical energy from your foot to the ball. You can also transform energy. So for example, plants will take the kinetic energy in sunlight, the electromagnetic radiation, and transform that into potential energy, specifically the chemical energy stored in a carbohydrate. So now that we have a pretty good idea of what energy is, just remember this. When we talk about energy can't be created or destroyed and entropy is always increasing, that is inside of a closed system. That means nothing gets in, nothing gets out. That's like the universe. And I've already said, you know, the universe will eventually grind to a halt when it reaches near equilibrium. That'll be like trillions and trillions of years into the future. Now the earth and life, living systems, they are not closed. They are open systems. So life has to have this constant supply of energy always flowing through it. You cut life off from energy and life dies. And that's not a good thing. That's why we always have to eat because we need that constant supply of energy. So that means if you're eating food and you're storing energy and chemical bonds, now you start to see you need chemical reactions. Life depends on chemical reactions. So what is a chemical reaction? Now, I like to ask these questions sometimes, get to the root of stuff. A chemical reaction is basically you're making and breaking bonds. You're rearranging elements into new molecules. Remember, bonds hold elements together to form molecules. So if I'm taking glucose molecule, which is C6H12O6, six carbon atoms, 12 hydrogen atoms, and six oxygen atoms, all held together by covalent bonds. And if I take some oxygen too, and I break those bonds and I rearrange them into carbon dioxide and water, CO2 and H2O, I've had a chemical reaction. I'm not creating or destroying elements. And in fact, in a chemical reaction, the same carbon atoms on the reactant side will also be in the products. So chemical reactions, they don't change the elements, but they do change how we arrange those elements together in molecules. So that's important. Now, a couple other things about chemical reactions. If you're gonna break a chemical bond, that takes energy. It always takes energy to break a bond. That's why the paper on your desk doesn't just spontaneously erupt into flame. That's why you won't spontaneously combust. I promise you, even if you saw Kenny do it on South Park or whatever you've seen on the Google webs, nope, spontaneous combustion is just not a real thing. 
there has to be some form of input of energy to break the chemical bonds. And that's what we're going to talk about enzymes in a little bit. Now, when bonds form, energy is released. Now, that's interesting. Energy is released when a bond is formed, and it takes energy to break a bond. And depending on the strength of a bond, sometimes it takes a lot of energy to break a bond. Sometimes it doesn't take much at all. So when I talk about chemical reactions, you may have heard the words exothermic, exergonic, endothermic, endergonic. So let me break these down really quick. Exo, exothermic, which means outward heat, is releasing heat. Exergonic is a spontaneous reaction. So exothermic reactions are also exergonic because they're spontaneous. And an endothermic requires heat. It takes in heat. An endergonic is a non-spontaneous reaction. Now, wait a second. Didn't I just tell you that, like, there's no such thing as spontaneous combustion? But I just defined an exergonic reaction as spontaneous? Okay. Well, the term spontaneous has a little bit different meaning in chemistry than it does in our everyday life. Here's an example. You've started a fire before. That is a spontaneous reaction. It is exergonic, and because it's releasing heat, it is exothermic. Here's what's happening. I've got a fire. The wood, or your paper, is made up of a carbohydrate called cellulose. And cellulose is a polymer, which means it's made up of lots of glucose molecules. It's made up of sugars, basically. And you know that sugar has energy. So, you want to start a fire, you need an input of energy to break the bonds holding your glucose together, right? That's your input of energy. And what happens is when you break those bonds, you add energy, you break the bonds holding the carbohydrates together, then they immediately form new bonds with the oxygen, making carbon dioxide and water. Now, here's the spontaneous part. When carbon dioxide and water form, those bonds are releasing a lot of energy. The reason why is because those electrons are falling closer to the oxygen, they're releasing lots of energy, and they release enough energy to break the bonds and the carbohydrate next to them. Ah, so you break those bonds, they go on to form more carbon dioxide and water, those release energy, they break the bonds of the next glucose molecule. So once this fire gets going, it will continue to burn, hence the term spontaneous. Not spontaneous in our everyday usage because you still need an input of energy to get the reaction started. Endergonic reactions. These are non-spontaneous. Now think about it this way. Plants take in carbon dioxide and water and the energy and sunlight and they make glucose out of it, a carbohydrate. This is non-spontaneous. I could take carbon dioxide and water, put them together in a jar, and they will stay there to about the end of time and will probably never form a molecule of glucose. Won't ever happen. So now you can start to see our story emerging. Life is a series of chemical reactions. Some chemical reactions release energy. Those are exergonic reactions. Some chemical reactions take in energy. Those are endergonic reactions or non-spontaneous. So our metabolism, this is the sum of all chemical reactions, breaking things down, building things up. Exergonic reactions are typically catabolic, meaning they're breaking things down, and endergonic reactions are typically anabolic, we're building things up. So if your body 
or specifically your cells, are making a protein out of amino acids, this would be an example of a non-spontaneous or endergonic reaction. And what do you need? Energy. Well, where does the energy from that come from? Well, you might be guessing it, from catabolic reactions. So our metabolism, in order to build a more complex molecule, what our cells do is they couple an exergonic reaction with an endergonic reaction, right? So let me say this again. They're coupling a reaction that releases energy with a reaction that requires energy because you can't build something without an input of energy. So you get that from breaking other molecules down. So there's a couple different ways that our cells do this. You can have an exergonic reaction that's applying high energy electrons or phosphate groups. Hmm, high energy electrons. Let's talk about that one first. You see, in chemistry, there's a set of reactions called a redox reaction. And what they do is they transfer energy. Now, a redox reaction stands for reduction and oxidation. So reduction reaction is you're gaining electrons. Hmm, electrons, electricity, energy. So if you're being reduced, you're often gaining electrons and you're gaining energy. On the flip side, oxidation, you're losing electrons. If you're becoming oxidized, you're losing energy. Now, if something is gaining electrons, well, those electrons don't come out of thin air. They've got to come from somewhere. So you have to have an oxidation. So reduction and oxidation always occur together. Hence the name redox reaction. Although you may have never heard of a redox reaction, you're actually quite familiar with it. You ever lit up a Bic lighter? Have you ever turned on a gas stove, started a fire, driven a car? <laughs> Those are all examples of redox reactions. Ultimately, if you're, let's say you're, uh, you're starting a fire, and I've already talked about wood, it's made up of cellulose, which is a carbohydrate. And whenever you start your fire, you get out your flame, start it up, the flame is going. What's happening is that the glucose molecules are being oxidized. And specifically, the carbon and hydrogen are being oxidized as they lose electrons. You see, oxygen, which is in the air, that's why you need oxygen for a fire to happen. Oxygen loves electrons. It's like the second most electronegative element in the known universe. Or just the universe. I love saying the second most electronegative element in the universe. The most electronegative is, of course, fluorine. But oxygen, with all of its eight protons in its nucleus and only two electron shells, has a really strong affinity for electrons. So when the glucose molecule breaks apart, when you break the bonds between carbon and hydrogen or carbon and carbon, those bonds immediately react with the oxygen and they form carbon dioxide and water. Now, the oxygen is being reduced because it's gaining electrons from the carbon or the hydrogen. And then the hydrogen and carbon atoms, they are being oxidized. So what happens is this reaction releases energy because all those electrons that were being shared equally between carbon and carbon and carbon and hydrogen, they are no longer shared equally. They are all right around the oxygen and they've lost energy and they transmit that energy as heat and light. So as the carbon dioxide and water form, as oxygen forms new bonds with carbon and hydrogen new bonds with oxygen, 
energy is released and we see that energy as a flame and we feel it as heat. Now, our cells do something really similar every second of every day. They do what is called cellular respiration. We break down glucose along with fats and other molecules as well, and we oxidize them all the way to carbon dioxide and water, and we extract energy from that. And that's an example of a redox reaction. Now, electrons, electricity, energy. So redox reactions also transfer energy. So if something's being oxidized, it's losing energy. So as a glucose molecule gets oxidized, it's losing energy. If something is getting reduced, it is gaining energy. And when it comes to our cellular metabolism, a lot of times we break down molecules. Now, we don't do it like a fire. A fire is just an uncontrolled redox reaction. Our cells are quite regulated, quite controlled, step-by-step -step processes. And what happens is we break down carbohydrates or fats. We transfer those high energy electrons and those organic molecules to electron carriers called NADH and FADH2. So what we do is we reduce them. And not only do we transfer an electron, we also strip all the hydrogens off of our carbohydrates and our fats, and we transfer them to those electron carriers. And then those electron carriers will take those high energy electrons, the energy there, and use it elsewhere in the cell. And if you're talking about cellular respiration, of course, that would be wait for it, oxidative phosphorylation. Got to power the electron transport chain. Now that's a subject for another podcast. Now there's another way that cells transfer energy. And this one is also incredibly important. You ever heard of the energy currency of life? It's called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Now that name tells you something. You may be thinking adenosine, adenine, is it kind of the same thing? Sort of. It's a nucleotide. Triphosphate, three phosphate groups on, on there. A phosphate group is a phosphorus atom surrounded by oxygens. That immediately tells you this molecule or this functional group is highly electronegative. It's going to be negatively charged. So if you stick a phosphate group onto any molecule, you're adding this big negatively charged thing to it. So one of the ways that we transfer energy is we transfer phosphate groups to molecules. We take phosphate groups and put them on and any type of protein enzyme that adds a phosphate group to something, that's called a kinase, and something that removes a phosphate group is called a phosphatase. And our cells have thousands of different types of kinases and phosphatases that are adding and removing phosphate groups. And like I said, when you add a phosphate group, think about it, that phosphate is coming from an ATP, pop it off, now you have ADP plus this phosphate, and the kinase sticks it on a molecule, and you've got this big, huge charged thing on there. And that does a lot of different things. For one, it can change the shape of a molecule. So if you remember your protein pumps, like a sodium potassium pump, proton pump, the way they're pumping protons or sodium or potassium is by changing shape. If you add a phosphate group on there, and if there's other partially negatively charged functional group, like hydroxyl, carboxyl, 
carbonyl, right? Then they're going to repel each other. And if they're repelling each other, then you're putting tension on those covalent bonds. It's like pulling a rubber band back and putting tension on it. And once you put more tension on those bonds, because they're repelling each other, they have more potential energy. They're easier to break. So here's a quick example of how you can couple an exergonic reaction with an endergonic reaction via the transport of an ATP molecule. So let's say you've got to make the amino acid glutamine. It's one of the most abundant amino acids in our bodies. And you can take glutamic acid and ammonia. And to put those two together to form the amino acid glutamine takes about 3.4 kilocalories a mole of energy. So what you do is you take your ATP and you phosphorylate glutamic acid, all right? And then you add glutamine to it. Now, the energy coupling is like this. Whenever I take the hydrolysis of ATP to ADP and creating that phosphorylated intermediate, that releases 7.3 kilocalories a mole of energy. Oh, so by using that ATP, I'm releasing or using 7.3 kilocalories a mole of energy, but to make the glutamic acid only takes 3.4 kilocalories a mole. So now I have taken an endergonic reaction and made it exergonic. And that's exactly how our cells make lots and lots and lots of different types of molecules. And in fact, all of your DNA and RNA is made by a very similar process. You use these activated nucleotides that have three phosphate groups on them. And when those phosphate groups come off, it releases a lot of energy, enough energy to build RNA or DNA. And as you can imagine, the regeneration of ADP to ATP, it's like charging up the battery, requires energy. And that's what we learn in cellular respiration. Because every day, you use about your body weight of ATP. By now, you're probably starting to realize there are a lot of different chemical reactions that take place inside of our bodies. And they don't just happen on their own, especially those endergonic reactions. And I just showed you that you had to have a special protein enzyme called kinase to add a phosphate group onto something. So I use that term enzyme. So what exactly is an enzyme? Well, most enzymes are proteins that speed up chemical reactions. Now, the question is, how do they do this? How does an enzyme make a chemical reaction happen and speed it up? I mean, there are enzymes out there that can facilitate like 25 million chemical reactions in a second. And the other important thing about enzymes, they don't get used up in the process, at least not usually. So now I want to talk about how do enzymes work? And that is a good question. There's this classical view of how enzymes work, and I'm gonna talk about that first, but stay tuned for the latest cutting edge in quantum biology. I know, wait, quantum biology? That sounds intriguing. But let me just talk about this classical view of how enzymes work. Remember that a chemical reaction is we're breaking chemical bonds and we're making new ones. We're rearranging elements into new molecules. You've got your reactants, which you start out with, and then you end up with your products. It takes energy to break a bond. All right, so what do enzymes do? Well, first of all, they do two different things. One is 
They align the reactants, also known as a substrate, specifically into a certain position. And then they lower the activation energy, making it easier to break the bonds of the reactants so that you can form the products. And the way they do that is the enzymes have a place called the active site. It's like a lock and a key. So the key is the substrate, the lock is the active site. The substrate, of course, are your reactants. And basically those substrates, your reactants, fit very specifically into an active site. And in fact, most protein enzymes can only carry out one type of chemical reaction because the active site is incredibly specific for a particular reactant. And then once the substrate, AKA the reactants, have bound to the active site, the protein enzyme, it can change shape a little bit. It can imagine like it torques that reactant just a little bit and it's lowering the activation energy, which can speed up the reaction and convert the substrates, the reactants, to the products. And that's basically how it works. And we know that enzyme activity can be affected by temperature. The warmer it is, the faster it will go, unless you're protein denatures. And of course, uh, it's dependent on pH. In your body, enzymes are very specific toward different pHs. So an enzyme that works in your stomach probably would not work in your intestines at all because your stomach, of course, is incredibly acidic compared to your almost alkaline intestines. And of course, the activity of our enzymes are regulated. You can speed them up, you can slow them down. And there's a couple different ways we can do this. One way, remember that the active site, that's where your substrate binds. Think about it this way. The active site is where those reactants are gonna bind to it. And they're often very specific toward a specific substrate. If you were to change the shape of the active site, then the substrate can't bind to it and that enzyme is turned off. And there's a couple ways you can do this. One is called competitive inhibition. So imagine you've got a series of chemical reactions, you're trying to make a specific chemical, and if you have a lot of it, you don't need to make it because you're gonna waste energy and your resources. So a lot of times what will happen is the products downstream will bind to the active site and prevent the substrate from binding to it. That would be competitive inhibition. Another way of changing the active site shape is through what's called non-competitive inhibition. Once again, you could have some type of molecule. It could be the product of your downstream reactions that will bind to a position on the enzyme that's not the active site. It could just bind somewhere else on the enzyme and that causes the shape of the active site to change, preventing the substrate from being able to bind to it. Another way of regulating the way these proteins work is through allosteric activation or allosteric inhibition. Now, allo means like a way, and steric has to do with shape. So think about this. Proteins are constantly changing shape, right? And they can be active, inactive. And one way you can do this is you can have an inhibitor can bind to the enzyme and basically change the shape of the active sites so that the uh, substrate can't bind to it. Or you can have some molecule that acts as an activator. Hmm, activator, I wonder how that's gonna work. Once again, it could bind to a regulatory site 
on the enzyme and stabilize the enzyme into an active form. And like I said, that's different than having some molecule that's an inhibitor. Inhibitor inhibits activation, right? But it could bind to the molecule somewhere at some regulatory site. And then now the active site becomes non-functional and it can stabilize it so it's permanently turned off until that inhibitor is removed. So briefly, that's how enzymes can be regulated. You can turn them on and off by different methods. Now I wanna go back to that quantum biology. I just presented to you the classical way that enzymes work, right? They just arrange the substrates into a specific position and it lowers the activation energy, making it easier to break the bonds. But what is this quantum biology? First of all, the world of quantum mechanics, the scale of the universe at the size of atoms is bizarre compared to the way we see the world. You have particles that move as both particles and waves. So electrons move as a wave and they're a particle, wave-particle duality. They can be entangled. So when you affect an electron, it instantaneously affects an entangled electron however far away, and it appears to do this faster than the speed of light. I know, that's weird. Or electrons move as a wave. They can appear to be in two places at once. Yes, I know. I, I, I wish I could do that sometimes. And at the scale of atoms where quantum mechanics rules, small subatomic particles like electrons, what can they do? They can actually tunnel through objects. Isn't that weird? They can tunnel through objects. And this is where quantum biology becomes important. Now the classical mechanics is if you've got an energy barrier, think of that like a mountain. If you wanna break the bonds of a molecule, you have to go up and over the mountain. That is your energy barrier to breaking the bonds. However, in quantum mechanics, you can tunnel through objects. You can go through the barrier. And surprisingly, some recent discoveries show the enzymes that they might adjust their shape to accommodate this quantum phenomena known as quantum tunneling, where it allows the electrons to act as a wave function that propagate through the energy barrier. This is different from lowering the energy barrier or lowering the mountain or going over the mountain. You're not lowering the mountain or going over the mountain. You're going through the mountain. I know, isn't that amazing? And it turns out that this world of quantum biology might not be just limited to enzymes. It might be important for cellular respiration, hmm, like electron transport chains. It might be important for photosynthesis. And in my next series of lectures, I'm definitely gonna incorporate some of this quantum biology. And uh, I don't make any money off of this, but I read this book called Life on the Edge by Aka Healy, and I really enjoyed it, talking about how quantum biology might explain a lot of biological phenomena that we've always used a classical explanation. Now, let me clarify the difference between quantum and classical physics here. Classical physics, think like Newton. This is how we observe the universe at our scales. For every action, there's a reaction. You get the idea, right? Things just don't pop out of thin air. They have to come from somewhere. So we've always thought that like the weird world of quantum physics, where you can have quantum tunneling, you can be in many places at once. A particle can act as a wave and as a particle. 
or yes, you can have particles just pop in and out of existence. I know that's so weird, but that happens in the quantum world. But it's always been thought that as you scale up and get larger, that these quantum effects are quickly lost. So when you get to the scale of biological systems, those weird quantum effects are just lost. But this just goes to show the importance of why we keep asking questions and studying things. Because right when we think we've got it all figured out, there might be a lot more to that story. And that a lot more to that story could be really important. And this just goes to show that like around the early 1900s, like in the 1890s to the early 1900s, physicists thought that they almost had the entire universe figured out based on classical physics. Then comes along quantum physics and we're still trying to figure out the universe. So it doesn't surprise me at all that biology, there's still some things that we don't know. There's actually a lot. And this quantum biology might be a whole new field of study. Well, I hope you enjoyed this as we talked about energy and enzymes in our metabolism. And of course, what does it mean to be living or what does life do? Some of my favorite topics. Until next time, this has been another episode of Tom Sycast. <laughs>